All right, so we are in the time of monkery. Let me pray and we'll jump back in here. Lord, we are thankful for all of the um, church history that you have brought about. We learn from the bad, we learn from the good, but help us to be more knowledgeable of all of these things so we can live a more godly life. In Jesus' name, amen. So a good, well, I'll just say a good theologian that was a monk, not all of his theology was great, but some of the main emphasis of Anselm of Canterbury was very helpful when we're talking about theology because uh, he brought back to light some things about the gospel, some things about the atonement that are vital for us today. Things we just assume have always been around, but really they were lost during the, the dark Middle Ages. Anselm was born in 1033. I think I went through this last year. He grew up in France. He, he joins the monastery, gives all of his wealth away. He becomes the abbot of a monastery in Beck. And then he goes across the English Channel with William the Conqueror, and William conquers England. Now Anselm becomes the Archbishop, which is the highest office in England that you can have. Even today, the Archbishop of Canterbury still exists in the Anglican Church. They just kept the title, kept the position when they broke away from the Roman Catholic Church. But this is the highest ecclesiastical office in that time and even today. So here's his assumptions that he, as he's writing these works that last up until today, the assumptions here is number one, acceptance of the faith. Number two, belief that faith is coherent, understandable. You can, you can understand it. And the requirement of doctrinal synthesis. Not just about quoting biblical texts and church fathers, but putting it together with logical thinking and language. So this is key for Anselm because during the Middle Ages, it became a time where you didn't actually work to understand the Bible and theology as much as you just quoted as many people as you could find. And so if we're in a classroom, you know, Forrest might, he's representing Aristotle's philosophy and all the church fathers who agreed with him. I'm representing Plato and all the church fathers who agreed with him. We throw some verses on our side and we just debate back and forth. And then eventually the teacher weighs in and gives his thoughts as well. So it really came down to opinions, it came down to debate, it came down to trying to prove your point based on the church fathers, instead of thinking, okay, what does the Bible say about this? And how can we phrase that like they did in those early creeds where they tried to word the doctrine of Christ in a biblical way? And I think they did a good job of that. But during the dark ages, we'll call it dark theological at least, uh, there was just a lot of confusion. So we get to around 1000 AD, and Anselm says, no, really, theology should be done trying to synthesize all that the Bible says, and we start by accepting the faith first. We don't try to reason outside of Christianity like the pagan philosopher and come into Christianity like that. So he wrote uh, three great works that are still very influential today. Um, in 1078, he wrote Monologian, a Logical Meditation on the Trinity. So how do we think about the Trinity? And he called this his meditations. I'm sure he meditated on that doctrine often, but they're his thoughts on paper, essentially what we would just call a theology book today. Prologian, that includes his ontological argument, that God is that which nothing greater can be conceived. So he said we can prove that God exists, even to the unbeliever, because God is the greatest idea of anything that can be conceived. Maybe we'll come back later and talk about the arguments for God. But um, that's an interesting one. Sometimes fun philosophically. Um, and then his most, I think, influential is uh, Quer Deus Homo. That is countering the Jewish worldview and the Platonic worldview. So here he talks about, uh, here's a key quote from his book on the incarnation of the word. By always adhering to the same faith without hesitation, by loving it, by humbly living according to it, a Christian ought to argue how they are, and so much as one can look for reasons. If one can understand, one should thank God. If one cannot, one should bow one's head in veneration rather than sound off trumpets. So he says, look, if you believe in the Christian faith, if you have faith in Christ and believe in the doctrines taught in Scripture, and you can understand it, then give thanks for that. Even people who aren't gifted to that kind of understanding should still venerate. They should look to God and worship Him instead of going around thinking as if they know everything or listening to 
someone who's just quoting, quoting, quoting. Um, I didn't mention here that Anselm really brought forth the substitutionary atonement. He brought forth the substitutionary theory of the atonement. Substitutionary means that Christ died in the sinner's place. He paid for the wrath that was supposed to be put on the sinner. But when the sinner believes, Christ substituted himself. He stood in our place, also called vicarious, like a vicar who's supposed to stand in between you and God. But vicarious, substitutionary, or penal atonement. He paid the price. And Anselm said, of all the theories going around at the time about the atonement, this is the one that's the best because it matches Scripture. There are other theories. Even today, you have many people saying, no, no, Christ didn't pay for the, the sinner's punishment. He did something else. He provided an example. He made it so that we could look to him and just follow the good things that he did. No, Anselm said the substitutionary atonement is the best and the most biblical. We take that for granted today in conservative Christianity, but during the Middle Ages, it was not as well known. And even today in the Catholic Church, not quite understood. The next monk that made a major impact on theology is Francis of Assisi. Francis is very famous. He's supposed to have preached to the animals. It's said that he preached to the birds and they would rest on his shoulder. But let's talk about some other things that are helpful to us. He was the son of a wealthy cloth merchant from a town named Assisi in Italy. In his early 20s, he underwent a spiritual crisis and he renounced his previous life and adopted the life of a poor, wandering preacher. So often when we think of monks, we think of this poor guy in a monkish frock and he's going around begging for money and preaching. Really, that didn't start until Francis. I'm sure there were hermits and such that lived out in the desert that would take donations. But now he's traveling around asking for them. So he began to attract followers as the life of a poor, wandering preacher. Other preachers and priests wanted to follow him. So in 1210... His followers officially received permission to found a new religious order, the Order of Friars Minor, or the Franciscan Monks. So we've been talking about different types of monks, uh, Benedictines, for example, and such. And we looked at um, Cistercian monks. At this point in the Middle Ages, everybody wants to start their own movement. And particularly when it comes to wealth and, and whether we should accept lots of money in the monastery, or we should go out and just renounce all that and be poor all the time. That becomes this movement to start all these different uh, monastic orders. So the Franciscans got full permission by the Pope, and they started. Um, he started wandering around. He was known for being, uh, all, all the Franciscans, for taking about poverty, begging for their money to survive on, and preaching. And really, in the cities of Europe, especially Italy, the cities really saw this as something to be awestruck at. Typically, the priest or the bishop in a city had a lot of money. He wore the nicest clothes. He had all the gold that had been given to the church over the years. There were relics there. There were crosses gilded in gold. Uh, he had all the nice silverware for his parties. And so to see somebody who's of the clergy that's taken a vow of poverty and living you know, on the streets, essentially, uh, was something to look at. He drew attention. He was also very charismatic, and uh, not charismatic in the way we think today, but he had a charisma. He had an energy. Most services in the Catholic Church, even today, they're just dry, repeating stuff. Francis really tried to be energetic in his preaching. Supposedly, he did things that were irrational, like preaching to birds and animals. Anytime something like this happens, we want to go see if it's true, right? That's one of the things even Charles Spurgeon got attention for was the way that he preached. Now, in that case, it was good. But I'm sure when they went to see Francis to see if the birds came or not, that's not for the best, best of reasons. He was all about urban spirituality, how to live in the city, not go out and live in a monastery somewhere. So already during his lifetime, Francis of Assisi grew disenchanted. He got tired of the Franciscan order because the people who followed him were collecting too much money. People were giving large sums now. And so shortly after he died, the order began to bend its founder's rules concerning poverty. 
So even before he died, he was getting kind of tired of the whole organization. Toward the end of his life, Francis of Assisi withdrew from actively running the order. He traveled to Egypt in 1219 and in 1220. And remember, he, uh, he took place, I may have mentioned, in the Fifth Crusade, where he tried to help convert the local Muslim ruler. He said, look, why are we going on crusade to kill people? We ought to all go on crusade as preachers, and we ought to preach to the Muslims. And so he went and met with a local Muslim ruler of one of the cities they were trying to take in Egypt. Didn't really work out, so he went home. So we're looking now at the Franciscans. They, they represented a new type of religious ideal. And so now they're not just monks. Monks are supposed to be praying and working, praying and working. That's the monkish life. You go out in a cave or you go out in the monastery with other people and you pray and work, you pray and work. Well, now the Franciscans are also priests. They're traveling around doing priestly activities, preaching, conducting some kind of service outdoors. And uh, that's not going to... to make the best friends of the bishops in the cities. So they were often at odds. Uh, the Franciscan attempted to lead the Vita Apostolica or the apostolic life, they said. We are just modeling the apostles. They were mendicants, a word that I just mentioned. They traveled from town to town and they begged for a living. Um, they embraced both individual and corporate poverty. And, and as I said to Beverly, they would also, if you paid them money, they would come and pray for you. And that was supposed to often bring about some kind of healing. In addition to wandering and begging, they preached, they heard confessions. These activities set the Franciscans apart from the Benedictine monks who were just out in the monasteries. So they lived according to the rule of, of St. Francis, not the rule of St. Benedict, which is a new rule. Like monks, they followed a religious rule. But unlike monks, they moved about from town to town, preaching, hearing confessions, ministering. They condemned urban vices, so they were not popular with the wealthy. They were not popular with the merchants who made a lot of money at this time in cities. They were not popular with the bishops or priests in those cities. They condemned urban vices, greed, being obsessed with your time. They said, look, this whole idea of watching the clock and worrying about your day, they said, is not really biblical. They did accept the townspeople... Um, could lead a spiritual, meritorious life, and they used tactics to appeal to the average townspeople, the average person. So this order took off. Lots of people wanted to join it. And that led to more and more compromises, more and more Franciscan ideals being set aside that Francis had. And the, the order even splits up. You have a heretical uh, group that splits from it. And they're so serious about living in poverty, that they basically excommunicate all the other priests, including the Pope at the time, and saying that they're not true Christians because they're not living poor like Christ. The Pope then turns around and says they're excommunicated, and some of them are put on trial and punished and put to death. And uh, they would go around these, these, we'll call them the crazy Franciscans, I forget the exact name, but they would go around trashing towns, and taking the women and killing the men and taking the, the wealth and destroying it from each city. And one leader called himself an apostle. He had many wives. And eventually the urban leaders got their armies together. And because the Pope was sanctioning it, they hunted these men down and killed them. So that was one part that broke off from the Franciscans. They're still around today, by the way. Now let's talk about another theologian, probably the greatest theologian of the Middle Ages. Definitely the one Catholics look to today. Uh, Protestants sometimes talk about him as well, and that is Thomas Aquinas. Thomas was a Dominican. That's another monastic order that started, the Dominican order of monks. But he really represents the height of what's called scholasticism and also just the, the height of theology at this time. There's a, a painting, famous painting of him dipping his pen in... Uh, Ink there. Aquinas, just some history on him. He was born into a wealthy family. So a lot of these famous monks, they're born into wealthy families. They give up everything. Then they go and study and become scholars. So his uncle was a monk, was a Benedictine abbot. And uh, the family wanted Thomas to join that order. It was the oldest order in the region. So as a young man, he was sent to the university in Naples. And there he met some Dominicans and was very influenced by them. And so he decided to join the Dominican order. 
I don't think he wanted to go live out and just work on the farm and, and work on the monastery farm. He was more of a uh, scholarly-minded person, and the Dominicans were more about that. They wanted to study Scripture and study the, the works of Aristotle. So his family didn't like that. They kidnapped him in an attempt to dissuade him from becoming a Dominican. So you even have you know Catholics dividing over what monastery is the best and how we're going to prevent that from happening. So they kidnapped him, took him back home. He spent two years there, and uh, he kept trying. they kept trying to persuade him. And they realized finally after two years, he's just going to join this, this Dominican order. So he goes in 1245 to the famous Univers- University of Paris. And he studied theology under Albertus Magnus. Albertus Magnus is considered to be one of the greatest philosophical minds of the Middle Ages. Later, he'll travel to Germany with Albertus, and uh, he'll serve there as an assistant professor. So what's important here is that we realize the University of Paris, it's not like universities today, they're very secular, funded by the state. At this time, universities were all places of scholarship in theology. You didn't go get a PhD in you know, applied science or engineering and things like that. You went to the universities, you went to these places to study theology. You might study the great works and then history as well, but one of the big pushes in the university system, and even in early America with Harvard and Yale, were to train up pastors. And it was the same for the priests and those who entered the vows of priestly service to the Catholic Church. So the University of Paris was known as the place to go to get a theological education during the Middle Ages. Later, Oxford, and, and well, actually Oxford was already in existence by now, but Oxford and places like that, uh, Cambridge eventually will be places in the English world. But you could speak Latin, you could go to the University of Paris and understand the teaching. You didn't need to speak French. And then you could study under these men. So here's Aquinas. He's studying under the greatest philosophical mind. Where do you think much of his theology is going to go? Into philosophy. So two big books. People still love these today. The Summa Theologiae and the Summa Contra Gentiles. Uh, the, the theological work, the first one is for theological students. So that's the textbook for theology up until the Reformation. Because it's this huge work that looks at all these different doctrines. The Summa Contra Gentiles is how to convert the unbeliever. Really, it's a, an apologetic theology. So it's written not for students of theology, but more so that a Muslim or a Jew or someone trying to talk or convert them could pick that up and use it. Later, he's going to be called a saint by the Pope. Sainthood, of course, in the Bible just means every true believer. They're holy. They're a saint. In the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, saints are those recognized by the Pope based on certain credentials which change over time. And uh, to be a saint meant that you are an extremely holy person that didn't have to go through all the things of the average person, the average Catholic, to get out of purgatory. You sort of had a get-out-of-jail-free card. Now this is much later after his death. He's called a saint. Later, he's going to be declared a teacher of the church. Now, the word for teacher is doctor. So he's called a doctor of the church. He is the doctor of the Catholic church today. And this was in the 1860s at Vatican I. Uh, Pope Leo XIII officially noted that Thomistic thought, this was his theology and philosophy, was definitive for Roman Catholic theology. So in 1879, the Pope says, look, Thomas is so important to us that he's the definitive theologian. Remember, in, in Catholic theology, it's a little bit of everything, right? You've got these different teachers in the church, these doctors in church history. You've got the popes and what they say. You've also got some scripture, and it all works together to make up the Catholic theology, which is always changing, so they have to update the catechism that people are supposed to memorize. In 1880... He's made the patron saint of all Catholic universities and places of education. So highly respected among Catholics even today. More about him. Here's the big problem, although, although that's a big problem, right? He's uh, the definitive Roman Catholic theologian, okay? Where do they get much of their bad theology? Thomas. Here's the issue. He attempted to unite the teachings of Aristotle 
with the teachings of Augustine. So Augustine went to the scriptures and he tried to put it together theologically as he taught his people in the church. Aristotle's writings had sort of disappeared in the Middle Ages. The, uh, the manuscripts had been lost. They'd been destroyed. And then during the Crusades and what followed, a lot of Aristotle's manuscripts, turns out, had been taken by the Muslims who conquered the East, the Greek-speaking world, and they had been studying Aristotle. Now, suddenly, after the Crusades, you've got all these manuscripts being copied and brought to the monasteries in Europe. And they just love it. Oh, Plato, who's that? Let's set him aside and let's study Aristotle. And let's try to mesh, just like some of the early church fathers, let's try to mesh philosophy with the Bible. So he began to mix these two and even use Aristotle's writings to try to prove the scripture and put them together. He emphasized the importance of empirical thought, what we might call a more scientific process, and taught that truth comes to men through reason, natural revelation, and faith, supernatural revelation. Now, at the mere basis, this is true. In fact, today's sermon, next week's sermon, we're going to touch on this in Romans 1. We can understand as a natural man some things about God from creation, from what he puts in our hearts. The issue is Thomas and the Roman Catholics go further than this. They say there's a path to God through natural revelation. And um, he's, you know, they will say you have to have faith as well. But they make this pathway through what's called natural theology. Thus, faith and reason become the two primary ways through which theology is to be understood. So if you, if you study Romans, and we will be doing that in the sermons coming up, Romans 1 especially. The problem with natural revelation is that your mind has been twisted by sin. And what you think you might notice actually could be completely wrong. And often is if a person's not saved, because they have no heart that's been regenerated with the Holy Spirit helping them interpret things. So I won't go off into theology right now, but that was one of the issues that Thomas really brings to the forefront. So from a Protestant perspective, evangelicals today are really divided on Aquinas. Some think he's very helpful, especially in the area of Christian philosophy and apologetics. Others consider him much too Catholic to be considered a theological ally. In my opinion, it's kind of divided. If, if you look at Thomas on the doctrine of God, you're going to find he talks very similar and breaks things down, just like any of the good theology books we have here in the bookstore. Very reformed. In fact, Calvin sometimes mentions Aquinas, not as much as other reformers do, though. Calvin kind of had an issue with the, uh, the whole... Mass and the Eucharist. That's one of the bad things that Thomas tried to defend. And I, I believe he's the one who even said, you know, if a mouse comes in and eats the leftover bread, that little mouse is eating the body of Christ. So you've got to take care of the elements that are left over. And he did all this theology about the, the accidents and, and the, basically transubstantiation. We can thank Thomas Aquinas for not inventing it, but giving it uh, an argument that would make it go a long time in the Catholic Church, even till today. But when it comes to other doctrines, this guy thought, well, the doctrine of God, all the attributes or perfections of God, the Trinity, he had good arguments for that. He wrote quite a bit on that. So it really depends on what you're looking at. And even Protestants are very divided. Some love, they're, they're Thomist. They, they write books, how great Thomas Aquinas was. He was almost a Reformed guy, they say. And others say, you know, he's pure evil. I think if you want to form an opinion, you got to read all this stuff. And that will take you the rest of your life. So have fun. I think the, the Summa Theologica, Theologica is 3,000 pages, I believe. So here are these uh, monks. They, they thought it was more holy to shave the top of their head. That's called a tonsure. And that would identify a monk. So what do we make of all this monkery? Well, Martin Luther didn't have a very positive uh, thought on it. Because in his mind, it was all about works righteousness. But there are a couple of good things. They preserved, copied, and disseminated much biblical and Christian literature during the Middle Ages. All the manuscripts that we have today, pretty much all of them, have been preserved, 
copied and disseminated, at least in Europe, up until they found some in Alexandria. But even some great works of the early church, like the, um, the Vaticanus or Sinaiticus manuscripts of the whole Bible in Greek, these were found in monasteries or like the Vaticanus in the Vatican. And, and so there, there is some good in that God used these scholarly men who had nothing else to do but either work outside or work on their writing and illustrations in the scriptorium. God used them to preserve copies of Scripture. So up until the 1800s, any Bible you had would have made its way through the monasteries at some point, being preserved and copied and stored in those libraries. Also other Christian works, the works of Augustine. Why do we have those today? Because monks copied and disseminated those throughout Europe. Many other writings as well, including philosophers and such that are studied in universities today. Education. Monks were some of the few people who received an education. In fact, if you wanted your son to be well-educated but didn't care if he married, then you would go put him in a monastery. Some of the greatest minds throughout church history spent time in the monasteries. This eventually evolved into the university educational system. So the way that university started is that the people in town wanted their kids to get educated, especially their sons, and if they had money, they were willing to pay the monks, but they didn't want to give up their, their sons to the monastery. They wanted their sons to follow their business, follow in the merchant life. And so monks agreed to start teaching the wealthy children of the cities. And they developed schools and they developed uh, universities, essentially, to train them. And then later the monks realized, hey, we should be training priests. And they started doing that in the universities. So here's an idea of what a monk would be doing. A lot of times uh, when you come across... um, Issues with manuscripts, like those footnotes in your Bible that say early manuscripts said this, some manuscripts said this. A lot of those issues come from monks uh, and their copying. So you can imagine hundreds, thousands of monks throughout uh, the Middle Ages copying these manuscripts. There's going to be mistakes in handwriting, things that are hard to read. This uh, next next guy copying the Bible is going to see somebody's note over here and he's not going to know which one's right. And Things are going to happen that we can now look back and trace out. But here's a guy sitting all day, usually in the cold, uh, writing. Writing, writing, writing. They didn't have glasses back then. Your eyesight would go bad. Your hand would get cramped. He would be freezing cold. And you even have little things that, that these monks would write about how cold it is, how they wish they were done. They wish they didn't have to do this anymore. You know, just typical complaining. Here's a sort of a graphic of what a scriptorium might look like. So you had all these desks where they were copying. And and in a bigger monastery, they would have many monks working on this. And they would often have a huge library that they could access these books. Negatives. Lots of negatives here. They really emphasize the love of relics. Um, Monasteries, even though some of them said they were taking a vow of poverty, became very wealthy. Possessions were accumulated in monasteries. Now, that's good when it comes to copies of the Bible. Not so good when it comes to the idea of wealth and relics. Uh, It really proliferated the idea that the ascetic life is more holy. The idea that we're supposed to give up everything of this world, which is really more along the lines of Plato than biblical teaching. And that still exists in Christianity today. Even though people go and absorb and are very materialistic, they absorb the culture as best they can. They still think in their mind, we really ought to just be living off nothing in a cave somewhere with a loincloth, water and bread all day. And that's the apostolic life. Even though the apostles say, don't live like that. Paul says, that's not uh, the way to holiness. Uh, They still think that today because of the monasteries and how long these monasteries have existed. Also, this further desire for works-based theology. To live the ascetic life, uh, the main pull of that was that you could just go work for your goodness, for your righteousness. This was Luther's big issue. All I do is do all these things that are supposed to make me righteous. And he says, I just feel even more sinful because I never can be righteous enough. And God has perfect righteousness. And Luther ended up hating God's righteousness because he knew he could never attain that by his own works. It's just a hamster on the wheel who just constantly, continuously 
runs and runs and runs and never gets anywhere. Monasteries helped to further this and give it a lot of backing. So while they were copying the word, they didn't always honor it as much as they should. Uh, They would have these chapel services and such and mass, but it wasn't as if they were studying the Bible to be great exegetes. Occasionally you would have an Anselm or Thomas Aquinas, but usually that wasn't the monastic life. Also, bad, many prominent monks helped the Catholic Church further its heretical theology. We shouldn't be excited that someone continues to defend and write tons of defensive works on heretical theology. Also, the monastic life hindered the spread of the gospel because many of these orders said that their members cannot leave the monastery. Franciscans were different. Their life was about traveling from place to place. But others said, no, we're here unless you're sent on a special assignment somewhere. Then you need to come back eventually. But the idea wasn't spread out and take the gospel to other countries. That was more of the crusaders and the priests who went along with the crusaders. Also, we often don't hear about this, but monasteries became shelters for sinful activity. Immorality and homosexuality were prevalent, and they still are today. And uh, that was shielded from public notice by the walls of the monastery. So the idea was we get away from society. We get away from all the sin and temptation. Problem is, sin doesn't come from grass and trees and buildings. It comes from people. It comes from sinful hearts. And so you put a bunch of sinners together behind the walls of a monastery. There's sin there as well. Throughout the Middle Ages, there were many stories of homosexuality occurring amongst these people who had taken a vow of chastity. And even today, you still hear about the Vatican. I think last year, all this uh, homosexual uh, scandal that happened there. Okay, so we already did monasticism. Now we're moving on to a really short slide set here, but it might take us a while. On the Roman Catholic Church, we are almost up to the Reformation. And we need to get back to the whole Roman Catholic issue in the medieval period. So around 500, the popes, they're they're starting to be called popes, they start to bring forward theological beliefs that were held before that in just little pockets. But like any bad theology, it spreads. And if it gets popular enough, then it gets sort of ratified by the official leaders of the Catholic Church. Early on, that's the Pope and, and the bishops around the empire. Later, it just ends up being the Pope and his cardinals or other men, scribes and scholars that he has around him. So by the late medieval period, we're seeing a lot of issues that are really making people mad. Especially the kings of countries or nations in Europe. They're very upset at the Pope's power. And that he's draining their kingdom of all this money. And it's all going to Rome where they're building the Sistine Chapel. Where they're building and paying the best Renaissance painters and sculptors and builders of the day. I mean, we're mad enough today just about normal taxes, right? Can you imagine if, if in addition to the government, you had to send your money to the Catholic Church in San Antonio, the diocese of Bear County or whatever, and you had to send 10% or 15% or 20%, and you didn't even agree with all the stuff that they teach? So in this later period, especially 1250 to 1300, there were tremendous fighting between popes and emperors, primarily on whether the church or the state had the right of investiture, the right to appoint bishops. This is huge because if the king can appoint his man as bishop, then he's going to get his way on a lot of issues that come up in his kingdom. But if the pope gets to tell the king who the bishop is in his kingdom or bishops, that's going to cause some friction. So who has the right? Well, it's not even in Scripture, right? So uh, they're arguing over tradition and uh, official ecclesiastical teachings. The popes claimed absolute authority. No one had the power, though, that Innocent III had in the 1100s, late 1100s, early 1200s. Uh, Gregory IX, Innocent V, Clement V, they all had to fight with emperors. So there was earlier popes who had more power. But these, these kings and, and the Holy Roman Emperor, they decide, look, we can push back. We can take over 
areas that are ruled by the Pope and push him out. And at this time, we'll talk about it in a moment, there's more than one Pope. So that really makes the, the papacy really weak and open for fighting. Also, there was much pride, corruption, taxation, and church-state issues. So there's this buildup happening in the pre-Reformation period over power and money. Still today, that's happening. Power and money everywhere. Look at these taxes now that were received by Rome. If you paid an indulgence, two-thirds went to Rome. A third, I think, went to just your local bishop or church. Two-thirds of your indulgence went to Rome. And people are going uh, on crusade, but when those are over, there's no way to get an indulgence except just to buy it. And so fine, if people want to give money to the church, they'll take it. And you don't have to spend time in purgatory, and your family, loved ones, don't have to spend time in purgatory. And that's a great idea. All right, I'm giving everything I can. So two-thirds of that went to Rome. Then you had simony. This is an interesting tax. It's the acquisition of an office or other spiritual item by remuneration. It went to Rome depending on the situation. It's named after Simon Magus. Not a very good and godly character there in Acts 8. In fact, he tries to take what's not his. He tries to take the Holy Spirit. Well, these are men who wanted to take an office so they could receive the income that came from that. These bishoprics had land. They had farms. They had fields, wineries, breweries. And also the giving that came through there would generate an income. So this was a business by this point that you could make some money on. Also, this tax called the benefice system, first used in the feudal system for land, giving in return for service. Religiously, it was income received by the office holder for rendering his duties. So people went about their duties and had to give money uh, to the, whoever the office holder of that structure was within the church. So it's not that the church just happens in the spiritual realm and then the, the uh, secular rulers happened in the secular realm. There was a lot of overlap. And especially with the church at this time owning property, the Catholic church is one of the biggest real estate owners in the world, even today. And at this time, they own vast pieces of land around every church. Also, you had to give your annates first fruits, first year's income in office was paid to the Pope by the bishops, abbots, etc. So you're privileged to be a bishop. We've appointed you an abbot. You need to give the first fruits of your income that year that come in from the property, that come in from the giving. You need to send it to Rome. Also, reservations, the practice where the richest benefices are reserved for certain cardinals. So these places make so much money that it's not good enough for a bishop or an abbot. We need a cardinal overseeing it. So it's like a, a little territory, a minor kingdom almost, is how they thought of it. We're not done yet, though. You had to pay expectancies, a practice where the nomination was sold by the pope to the highest bidder. So if you want an office, oh, you want to be the bishop of, of this county, then just bid your price. Nothing to do with godliness, knowledge, anything like that. All the churches also paid an annual tax through their diocese to Rome. So your money you gave to the church didn't stay in the church. It went off somewhere else, much of it. Contributions paid to Rome in return for permission to build a church building. You want to build a new church building? We want to go out here and use this land to put up a bigger building. First, we have to get permission and pay a contribution to Rome to be allowed to do that. Because in that system, the Roman Catholic leadership owns and oversees all the churches in the land under the system. Papal fees were also paid for such things as sacraments and etc. So if you wanted a special service or you called a special mass, then you could have that. You just had to pay the price. You wanted them to do your wedding. You wanted them to baptize. Uh, all of these things were paid for by fees with certain people. Not done yet. The feudal influence produced additional complex taxes. So feudalism is where you had serfs working for lords who served their ultimate lord, which in that case might be a king uh, or a count or something. And this made its way into the Catholic system. So you had tribute from the secular rulers to the Pope. You had Peter's pence collected from every household, even if it was a penny. 
Peter's Pence. You had protection money paid by monasteries and bishoprics. You know, these other guys are attacking us and we're going to pay protection money. I mean, this is a racket, right? Racketeering. And then the clergy were severely taxed. You know, here's this guy who gives up everything to become a priest and now he's taxed on his income because you don't want to give the local guy too much power and money. You got to pull that out and put it in Rome so that nobody thinks they're better than the Pope. So all this is going on. People are fed up with it. Kings, rulers, princes, they're getting tense. Then comes along the Babylonian captivity of the Catholic Church. This was a term used by the Italian humanist uh, Francesco Petrarch. Petrarch is thought to be the guy who really started the Renaissance, even though he's a little before it. He had the idea of going back to the Um, historical sources, going back to the Greek, going back to the Hebrew, back to the philosophers, back to the original writing. He described what was going on as the Babylonian captivity because the Pope gets removed from Rome and put in France. And to the Italians and to many Catholics, the scenario matched what happened in the Old Testament. And it lasted about 70 years. You see the timeline there? 70 years in captivity for Israel, Seventy years the Pope was taken captive, or the office of Pope was taken captive. So this is a dark spot in Roman. There's lots of dark spots. We don't have time to talk about Pope Joan, but you can read about that. Um, I think it's a book called Bad Popes, and it goes through a lot of this stuff going on. There supposedly was a woman. Other scholars today say it was a myth, but in medieval times, people believed that a woman pretended to be a man got all the way up to the office of Pope, and then had a baby walking down the street in Rome and was quickly murdered or killed as a result of the mob, which found out it's not a man. Uh, Look up Pope Joan sometime if you want an interesting historical read. You can determine if that was true or not. Back to the Babylonian captivity, 70-year-long period, named after the Old Testament captivity. The papal chair, the office itself, was taken away to Avignon, France. When Boniface VIII took that chair, he still had the power held by his previous pope, Gregory VII, and Innocent III. But he failed to discern a new spirit of nationalism. This idea that we're not just one united Catholic church, but there's actually many different national identities. Freedom from papal control and independence of trade were suggested. So let's get away from some of this control of the pope. Boniface VIII, he didn't realize... Things were changing. Things were in the works. So a war breaks out between the king of France and the king of England. Boniface VIII sought to arbitrate that war. You know, I'm the pope. I'll make peace. But nobody listened to him. It's kind of a problem. So he said, look, if you won't listen to me, then I'll issue a papal bull forbidding the collection of money for the church. Which means the war is not going to get funded as well. Because the church isn't collecting money. And one of the things that they did during the crusader times is the king said, yeah, I'll go on crusade, but the churches of my kingdom have to give me some money to do that. Well, that continues on, even when we're talking about these inter-Christian wars here. So Edward responding by collecting the taxes anyway. And Philip in France uh, cut off sending the pope his share of the taxes. You don't get to have them anymore. Well, the Pope, you know, he issued a bull of excommunication. And he said, you're no longer a Christian. You're not in the church. And he said, if the king resisted the Pope, he resisted God himself. The bull quoted Thomas Aquinas. We declare, define, and affirm that every man must obey the Pope or forfeit his salvation. Must obey the Pope or you will lose your salvation. So this had a major impact on the Catholic Church in France. Uh, The people in France, France and Italy really, and Spain are kind of the heart of medieval Catholic belief. They did not like this. Philip uh, in France, he sees and can find the Pope in prison. Okay, fine. I'll take my army. I'll grab you and put you in jail. Okay, well, next Pope, Benedict XI, was now a Pope for nine months. And Clement, the next Pope, moved to Avignon because France is now controlling the papacy. And hey, let's just move it closer so we don't have to deal with this. He's already French anyway. And so he moved there. Philip had died in 1314. So now we move up to the next 70 years. So now the papacy is no longer centered in Rome. It's off in France. Seven popes, all French, 
and they're very weak, they failed to ever try to move it back to Rome. Some had an idea that that would be nice. It's tradition. That's where Peter supposedly started the church in Rome, which we know is not in the Bible. But they never could do it. They were very weak. They were subservient to the French interests. The king ruled over the papacy. And they also became very wealthy. Supposedly the palace in Avignon was gorgeous. It was much splendor. The Franciscans really hated it. That's why many of them rebelled and started excommunicating the Pope and all of his people. And the Pope would have these guys come to trial there and see all the splendor. Uh, Philip seized the riches of the Knights Templar in 1307. And then he had Clement abolished um, the order. So he's controlling, in other words, to the Pope. Clement V is the Pope. And remember the Templars were seized by the king of France, all their money, all their real estate. So what happened? Well, the papacy weakens against state interests, and a severe conflict over papal power came about. So now there's people who want the papacy back in Rome. There's some who want it in France. Well, here's the best thing. We'll just have two popes. That'll solve it, right? Uh, There's the castle in Avignon, I don't think all the splendor of the inside is still there, but it basically built a huge castle to rule from there. So now you have the papal schism. We already talked about the Great Schism. That happened around 1000 AD, where the East split from the West. The Pope and the Patriarch in Constantinople, the Pope in Rome, said we're two separate churches now. Well, now you have the church in the West splitting based on the different popes that are ruling at the same time. So I'll run through these. Uh, This is important just to see how silly it got. Um, The next pope, Urban V, made an unsuccessful attack to permanently move the papacy back to Rome. Gregory XI, the next pope, put an end to that exile, uh, moving the papacy back to Rome. Urban VI was elected on the grounds that he would move it back. So there's even guys getting voted in by the cardinals who say, I promise, just like politicians today, I promise to move the papacy back to Avignon. Then he refused. The French declared Urban VI illegal, and they elected a Frenchman. So you can kind of see, sometimes they move it back to Rome temporarily, and they try to get it back to France, and finally, okay, fine, we'll have a French pope and an Italian pope. So the French declared Urban VI illegal, elected a Frenchman, Clement VII. For the next 40 years, the Roman Catholic Church had two popes, two colleges of cardinals. Each pope and anathematized the other. Each pope said the other is a false church. You can't be saved if you're in that church. So we have not a physical fighting really, but a, a theological fighting of, okay, you're in France and you have to obey this pope. You're in other parts of Europe. You're supposed to obey the pope in Rome. So here's this idea of um, the pope in Avignon and the pope in Rome sort of fighting, and I think you've got Peter and Paul just, you know, flying through the air, kind of laughing at all this. So this isn't going to last very long, and the way you settle is by holding a council, and so the Catholic Church still recognizes all these councils in the Middle Ages as being authoritative. They held a council at Pisa, and the council was superior, they said, to the Pope. Now this had never happened before. The council said, we are superior to the Pope. We will make the decisions. Here's their decision. Both popes are out. We got a new pope in. Alexander VI. Then he died and was replaced by John XXIII. Same name as the pope in 1958. Now there's three popes. So he went from two to three. That's how well the council settled that. Because if you depose the other popes, but you live in their territory, you still see them as a pope. And so now there's three popes ruling. You've got Clement the Seventh there in France, Alexander's up in uh, the northern part of Italy, and Urban the Sixth is down in Rome. So who do you obey? Who's your church father? Who's the person that you go to for all these taxes and permissions that you need? Well, another council should settle it, right? Well, it actually did. It ended the schism. The Council of Constance in 1414 lasted four years, held in Constance, Germany. The way they settled it, all three popes are out. We got one new guy elected by the council, Martin V. And he's the same kind of operator the others were. 
Power is returned to Rome and the schism healed. So he is the guy that would tell everybody else what to do and he fixes the problem. No real reforms took place at Constance, although it was the first reforming council. So the whole idea was the church has really gone off track. It's very corrupt. This council is going to fix it. And all they could really agree on is getting rid of the three popes and appointing their new guy. As a side note, though, Jan Hus was burned at the stake there. Jan Hus is a pre-reformer who wrote against the Pope's power, against the abuses of the Catholic Church. He said, This council is a scene of foulness, for it is a common saying among the Swiss that a generation will not suffice to cleanse Constance from the sins which the council has committed in this city. So he was there building up to his trial. He's writing these letters, writing things. He described it as a scene of foulness. I mean, it's just all about power, politics, control, money. Here's the idea of the papal schism. You see, you got different popes for about 70 years. So when people say, well, the pope, what he says is official doctrine. What about when you had three popes? Which one was official? You know, they'll say the chain has been unbroken since Peter. What do they say, Michael? When there was three popes, which one's the official? No, don't talk about it, right? Better not just to not talk about things like that, because that's a real problem. And, you know, it is interesting. I wonder the doctrines that these guys made official, how that worked its way out. But I don't have time to go into all the details of study on that. Now we're up to the Council of Basel. I think we'll finish here. It's called to deal with the difficulties of Constance. The Constance Council didn't fix everything. And uh, they once again affirmed, look, the council has the official authority of the church, not the pope. The pope said, no, I have the authority. You're dismissed. The council said, no, we're not dismissed. We're going to keep meeting. And uh, this position was widely supported in the church that the council is supposed to be superior over the pope. Under this pressure, the pope revoked his former position, recognized the council, but continued uh, to oppose its influence over him. So popes are trying to take as much power as possible. Now you have these councils that are rejecting it, and the pope doesn't like it, but he'll submit. All right, we'll pick up here next week, and then we're moving into the pre-reformers. So we built up to the 14, 13, 1400s. We're talk about the men who came before the reformers and really led up to the Reformation. Lord, I do thank you for this time in church history that there were men like Jan Hus who stood for the truth, who did not submit to the power of the Pope, but looked at the scriptures and thought for himself and came and wrote so many works that we'll talk about next week. We are grateful that you preserve the gospel throughout the ages, and it's here today. Let us proclaim it in Jesus' name. Amen.